Hello everybody, it is the time of year to begin registering for one or two of my slow groups that begin in July. My slow groups are these special groups where I focus on one topic and we deeply unpack it over the course of six months. So these are highly nuanced, deep dive, advanced groups. These are excellent for those of you who have taken my six week course or who just want to focus on one particular topic through a somatic and trauma-informed lens. The two that are opening up in July, or will begin in July, are my embodied parenting group and my embodied nutrition group. The embodied parenting group is just like it sounds, learning how to parent from your body, learning how to ground yourself in your parenting so you're not parenting from a reactive triggered place, but from a much more conscious place so you can actually find joy in your parenting instead of it being a total hellscape, like some of you have told me it is, and I've experienced it myself. The other group is an embodied nutrition group. This has been requested for years. For the past four years after students complete my course, they say, can you please do a course on nutrition and make it longer than six weeks? So finally, I can say, yes, you can, and I can, and I did. It is a six-month unpacking of the intersection between trauma nutrition, and somatics. How do we recover from stress and trauma via food? How do we relate to food as a being and not just some object on the plate? What's the biochemistry of food? Why is it not the best for my blood sugar to have toast, but lentils are just fine if they're both carbohydrates? All of this and more will be unpacked in this six-month group. To register for these groups, please go to my website, holisticlifenavigation.com, and click Groups or you can click the link in the episode details below. Registration closes on June 1st. It is only open through May because we need the month of June to prepare everybody for July. I'm looking forward to this deep dive with you all. I'll see you there. On today's episode, we speak about the life-giving nature of death. You know, it's the same as like how we would want our body to be eaten by the creepy crawlies versus preserved in a lead coffin. Like we want that energy that comes out of our flesh to be used to empower everyone else's energy and life and purpose, not just Mm -hmm. like avoided. I feel like there's so much avoidance around death in our culture and Mm -hmm. there's actually this like energetic release that can help. Welcome to the Holistic Life Navigation Podcast. I am your host, Luis Mujica. I was sick and depressed until I discovered that I could make music, and then my whole life transformed because I began learning how to listen more deeply. Listen to life, to the people around me, and to my body. And that's when I realized that the body speaks through sensations, and learning this new language meant relearning my body and mind. I soon healed myself of many chronic conditions and then began teaching others how to do so as well. Holistic Life Navigation combines nutrition, self-inquiry, and somatic experiencing to help you release stress and trauma just by listening to your own body. This podcast serves as a place to share my experiences as well as the experiences of many others who have healed and are healing through unique, unorthodox, and unusual ways. Your time to learn begins now.
I want to start by introducing today's guests. Murphy Robinson is a priestix, wilderness guide, activist, and a student of the sacred hunt. They are a teacher to many, as well as a friend to many. I'm lucky to call Murphy a friend. As a queer transmasculine priestix, which is gender-neutral term for priest or priestess, they explore healthy and healing ways to reclaim the sacred masculine. Murphy teaches a wide variety of classes throughout the year and has their own podcast titled The Huntress Podcast. Murphy lives in the heart of Western Abenaki territory, what we now call Vermont. Jamie Wagner is our second guest. She is a priestess whose interests center around folk magic, mythology, oracular traditions, trance and ritual arts, as well as building sacred communities. Jamie trained as a priestess with the Sisterhood of Avalon for 13 years and now leads independent workshops and rituals across the United States. She is greatly influenced by the principles of nonviolent resistance as taught by Martin Luther King. So am I. Jamie also teaches many things solo and alongside Murphy. She lives in Alabama, the ancestral home of the Muscogee people. I chose to have these two on my podcast because I saw an email from them titled How to Die Well. And some people think like, Luis, you're, you know, you're, you're vegan. Why would you have a, a hunter on your show? Well, I don't believe anyone is more or less wise than anyone. And having spent time with Murphy in Sacred Circle and in Casual Circle, just eating in the mess halls at camp, um, I've come to find them to be such a gentle loving force of integrity. And I, my heart and mind is very open to what they believe and what they've experienced from their own path. I find the greatest wisdom is to include the voice of all. So that's why I have a hunter on my podcast today. What I'm interested in as well from both of them is their, their personal experiences that have led them to understand death in a way that some other people may not. Uh, so they're here to teach through their own experience and their own ideas and their own wisdom, all of us through this conversation around what dying well means, what's wrong with dying anyway, it can be a beautiful thing, and how to begin preparing for the inevitable in a way that is less morose and more celebratory. I want to welcome Jamie and Murphy to my podcast. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you so much. <laughs> so I, I was inspired to have you two after I received a newsletter several months ago that was titled How to Die Well. And when I heard that, that, that it's not really even a question, but it's like an invitation, like how to die well, I thought that's exactly what I'm, what I'm interested in. You know, um, how to die well. Because to me, living well is dying well too. I don't see a difference. So I was really interested in, first of all, before we go into how to die well, just a little bit of background from both of you around what, I guess, what experiences informed you finding this work around death and sacredness. Um, so I'd like to start with Murphy and then Jamie. Sure. Um, 
Let's see. I feel like this work has definitely been a spiritual calling um, that is not something that I picked myself or decided, like, I'm going to lean into death magic and death work. You know, that that was never something in my mind, but it was a matter of following the spiritual callings, following the breadcrumbs as they were put in front of me and coming to this place. Um, so I grew up in a vegetarian, Hindu-inspired, slightly cultish but friendly community um, in Fairfield, Iowa that was based around transcendental meditation. And everyone there was a vegetarian and uh, they dressed in pastel colors and they spoke softly and it was very like uh, idyllic in in a lot of ways and also sort of avoidant in other ways. And as I came into adulthood, I found myself really, really drawn to the wild nature part of our world. And I, my first job out of college was um, being a wilderness backpacking guide for teen groups in the mountains of Vermont. And I, I now have my home in the mountains of Vermont. That, that love affair hasn't ended. Um, and, but I, I guided all over the country and um, just spent a lot of time on the trail. I, I solo hiked the Appalachian Trail, uh, which is over 2,000 miles on the east coast of the U.S. And in all of this like closeness with nature, I became familiar with a much more raw and powerful version of what Mother Earth brings to the table of what we are embedded in with mother earth than the sort of love and light version um not that there isn't love and light there but there there is a a deep rigor and a deep fierceness in the encounter with the natural world and in my time out there i really learned to like live in the mountains and navigate any any hazards in that life and uh, be really comfortable just living out of my backpack all of that feel feel really Um, that piece in the woods. And by the time I finished my Appalachian trail hike, I actually was like getting a little bored with backpacking. Like there wasn't a challenge in it anymore for me. And I love to be challenged. Um, And during that experience, I'd actually had the thought sort of float into my mind that maybe I should learn to hunt, um, which was a very, very foreign and alarming thought to have arise in my mind because I was still vegetarian and I had been raised to think that all hunters were evil and violent. Um, And yet I, in my uh, wilderness education work, I had studied wolves and ecological cycles and predator-prey biology and things like that. And I'd learned a lot more about the balance that predation brings to the wild world and how necessary it is. And um, long story short, if you want the whole story, you can go listen to my podcast, The Hunter's Podcast, because it's chronicled on there. But long story short, I found a hunting mentor who was uh, a wonderful fit for me and very thoughtful in in his sort of gruff Southern boy kind of way. And um, I was initiated into the practice of the sacred hunt. Um, And that opened up this whole new relationship for me with the wild world of like learning to see the forest through the eyes of the deer and learning how other animals navigate that space in a whole new depth of way and it also called me to like a whole new level of authentic living because as someone who had lived vegetarian and sometimes vegan for a very long time and felt comfortable and healthy with that and my body didn't feel any nutritional deficiencies it was a choice for me to engage with food in that way. Um, 
that was mostly based on spiritual leaning and also in an analysis of local food and that like living in the northern climate, like meat is one of the foods we can produce for ourselves in abundance um, that nourishes us on a lot of different levels. It's like sustainable in a certain way, um, especially meat from the forest, not factory farmed meat or anything like that. I, I don't engage with that. But um, in making that choice, I moved into a phase of like deep accountability. I felt very accountable to this buck that I had taken and eaten parts of and you know, given parts away. And I felt like, man, if I'm, if I'm going to take another life in order to nourish myself, I owe it to that being to live my life in the most full way, like to, to realize my gifts in the world and not to dilly dally around and, you know, just like working silly little day jobs and stuff like that, but to actually like bring forth the gifts I have for the world um, because anything else would be disrespectful to the one who nourished me. Mm. And um, so that was kind of my doorway into working with death. Um, and I have since, uh, again, to my great surprise, become a professional hunting teacher. And um, I teach people to engage with the hunt in this uh, sacred, prayerful, um, sort of courtship kind of way, uh, treating the prey as the beloved. And in my work, we, I both take people on actual hunts and we also do sacred slaughter work um, in a more controlled way so that we can get the teachings of, of those creatures about um, how to use all the parts of their bodies and things like that. And so I've, I've um, facilitated a lot of death. I've pre-sticked a lot of death in ways that are held in song and in prayer and in good intentions and um, commitment to using all the parts and to living authentically with the energy that's given to us for that food. So a lot of my doorway into death work is around food. And then the other piece of it is around um, the pre-Christian beliefs around death from my ancestry and intellectual lineage in, in Europe and uh, working with different deities and mythological figures. Um, I work with Skadi the Huntress, who's a, a Norse deity, one of the more obscure Norse deities. And I work with Hades, the god of the Greek underworld, which I don't have Greek blood, but the Greek intellectual lineage is strong in my cultural upbringing, um, as it is for most folks in like the Western culture. And, um, and just looking at different death traditions from pre-Christian times in Europe. And that's the other, that's where I try to reach for, for inspiration on how to bring that sacredness to the moment of death. And so between looking, I think a lot of our relationship to death is weighted down with um, like monotheistic, um, often Christian uh, concepts about what happens after death and, and what death means. And so opening up my understanding of that, both with other um, belief frameworks and with direct experience of witnessing and holding the process of death have been the, the teachings that have helped me come to this work. Mm. So beautiful. Thank you. Jamie, how about you? What led you to this work? Well, I feel like most of my life I've walked with death um, pretty intimately. Um, as a child, um, I, I struggle with generalized anxiety disorder. 
<clears throat> and as a child, this was undiagnosed and untreated. And one of the ways that it manifested was uh, insomnia and night terrors for most of my childhood. And one of the things that I was scared of that would keep me up at night was the fear that I would die in my sleep. And, you know, as an adult, you know, you can sort of deal with those emotions. You have the emotional intelligence and maturity to sort of sort those things out. Um, you know, what's, what's truly worrisome and what is just, you know, sort of an irrational fear. But as a child, you don't have that emotional maturity. And so I spent many nights uh, awake with a small lamp and a book <laughs> Um, trying to, you know, convince myself that I was going to be okay until the morning. Um, you know, and then I, I reached adulthood and, um, you know, did some therapy and other things. So, you know, I was able to um, come to a place of peace with my night terrors and with my anxiety. But that was really my earliest experiences with death because I feel like I stood side by side with it most of the nights of my childhood. And, um, it was uh, interesting when I uh, started down a priestess path, which was about in 2005, I was involved with an organization called the Sisterhood of Avalon that teaches a cycle of healing that follows the cycle of the seasons. So when the nights become longer and darker, you uh, work on the shadow side of yourself. So again, this sort of brought death and um sort of the hidden and the mysterious uh, to the table. And I was already familiar with that. So the work wasn't that scary for me. And um, then, you know, I think it was in 2016, I was at Vermont Witch Camp and I was actually on the ritual facilitation team. And we were doing the story of Persephone's descent into the underworld and everybody on the ritual facilitation team um, took a role to sort of um, to nurture and to bring to camp and to hold the energy. And it just worked out that my role was Hades, <laughs> um, which, you know, I hadn't done a whole lot of work with Hades before, but my um, knowing what a big role it would be at that camp, uh, which is a week long for folks that are not familiar with that camp, um, you know, seven days is a long time to hold that energy. So I did a lot of preparation, a lot of research, a lot of my own trance journey, a lot of my own sort of investigating and working with the energy so that I would really be able to carry it well and to recognize it because that's a very important thing when you're involved in that type of work to know what's you and not you. So you can sort of navigate that. And, um, the experience I had at camp, especially during um, the rituals that we would have at night in which I would engage in, um, it's a technique that some call aspecting. It's a sort of, um, it's a sort of channeling or transpossession where you invite that energy into your body and you sort of um, let, let that type of energy come through and interact with other folks um, on a physical level. Um, I don't know, I, because I have been a pagan polytheist for years, but that deep, intimate experience was very life-changing in many ways. Um, and so a, a few, you know, a year or so passed, and I was kind of after that camp, and I was wavering back and forth on um, what would be the next step, like what would be my next step with that work. And I did decide to go ahead and make a... Um, 
a dedication contract essentially with Hades for one god year which in human years that's nine years <laughs> and I'm currently in year three of that contract and it takes um, many forms I, I volunteer in hospice work I often have conversations with all kinds of folks family members non-family members about planning for death and preparing for death and um Murphy and I have just taught a three-month module <laughs> about death, pre-stixing, and um, kind of tending that threshold of transition. And I find the work to be really rich and really rewarding. And actually, it's given me um, a real appreciation for, for life itself, rather than being um, you know, something that's uh, morbid or depressing. Like It's actually very life-giving. And um, I'm very grateful to all those experiences. And, and, and in fact, it was it was the Hades experience that brought Murphy and I together. <laughs> so, mm. Mm. yeah. So I think that's how uh, how how my relationship with death developed over the years. <sighs> I'm so full. I love hearing both of you talk. Um, I think what's interesting about your stories is how you you've both had this experience of being influenced by death into more life. Like you're both saying it's it's not morose, it's not macabre, it's not like, you know, goth or sorrowful. But it's, you know, my you know, my my intro was goth, right? Like in the seventh grade. And but I'll I'll tell my thing at the end, you know, in my own post edit. But it's similar to Jamie being up all night long and having insomnia and thinking I was dying all the time. But what's interesting is when you start honoring death and like watching death, even the death of a thought, right? like the death of an identity or the, you know, the death of a tree or of an animal or a person or the, an era, whatever it is. I also find that it's like the transition into a new life force. So there's all this more life that comes from it. It's not this like period that um, seems so colonial, like a period. And so I, I wonder, just as I say that, um, I'll go to Murphy, then Jamie, like what are your thoughts on that in, in terms of I guess in terms of how it enriches life, how death itself enriches life. I feel like this is something that I um, I find a lot of inspiration in, like fantasy literature about this, and the, the, you know the the thought experiment of these like long lived or immortal races of you know elves or or whatever, and um, there's there's this like melancholy that is often portrayed in immortal beings or long-lived beings where everything seems like a little dull or muted for them. And I think that uh, the fact that our time in this form of consciousness is finite is what gives it its color. Mm. Um, I think that, you know, we, we commit to like fully appreciating each other because we know that life is finite and relationships are finite and everything goes through a cycle and that gives like a poignancy and a, and a power to our joy as well. And I think that there's a, there's a lot that I've thought about around this like melancholia around death in the, the response, the cultural response that we've seen to the coronavirus pandemic that at this time of recording, we're in the middle of it. It's uh, the night before the winter solstice. And we have in the U.S. about two people dying per minute of the coronavirus at the t- at this moment. And um, people's responses to that 
and 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 the levels of like depression and despair that that people are having is so real and it's such an important thing to work with and um, yeah it's it's definitely all all tangled up in our cultural relationship with death and um i think that it's so important to avoid unnecessary suffering and to promote public health and and survival and to value our elders and all of these things um, that are, have somehow become con- controversial and politicized in our society in the past year. Um, and I do think that there's also a level of like personal fear that people experience around um, the potential of dying from in this particular way that would potentially be eased by a more nuanced framework around death or like a different um, conceptual framework around death than I feel like the the options folks have in our culture are generally like a sort of generic Christian framework around death of like sort of maybe you go to heaven or hell or you're sort of rewarded or punished in some way after death. Or there's just like the nihilistic, like hardline science response of like, then it's over. You no longer exist. That's it. You know, you're eaten by worms. Um, <laughs> and I feel like there, I mean, A, being eaten by worms is an honor. And like the, the worms deserve <laughs> to be have food too. And it's great to be a part of the compost cycle in our world. That's a way of living on. It's a, it's a type of reincarnation. Um, but also there are so many other ways we can think about it. And there's so many ways we can like think about the legacies that we leave. I think there's a, there's a part of our kind of ego emphasized thrill seeking culture that um, just really puts value on personal experience. And I think that older cultures that had deeper relationships with the ancestors had a real emphasis on legacy and Mm -hmm. what stories would be told about you. How would your, your family, your community, your society be better for you having lived and worked, um, you know, the way you used your time when you were alive and shifting the focus to that kind of like wider contribution lens versus a like consumption lens is Mm -hmm. really calming when you're, Mm -hmm. when you're trying to think about death. I, I appreciate that because I, I, um, absolutely, you know, I find that, uh, there's a generosity that my body will compost, right? Like that's a generous act that my body will do when I'm gone. That's a, that blows my mind and comforts me at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it, to me, it's like, that's, that's a success story. And we have a whole industry built around making sure your body doesn't compost and injecting it full of formaldehyde and putting it in a sealed casket. So it will like rot without feeding anything for all time and um so i'm very inspired by like the natural burial movement and all of these things yeah they give us the options to actually engage in that cycle jamie what are your thoughts on on how death influences life and and possibly even the the lens of how you see through with pandemic or any kind of illness or or you know death in that way well the living are alive because of the dead basically (laughs) I mean, it's just as basic as that. Um, Plants have to die. Animals have to die for us to have the food that we need to be alive. So um, we are intricately bound with uh, with death in um, a very, very visceral way. And I think, um, you know, similar to what Murphy was talking about, we we, you know, if we stop seeing death as a period and we see it as more of a transition, um, it becomes different. Right. And, you know, 
one of the things that I think is really interesting about death is, you know, I have my own ideas about death. You probably do too. Murphy has their own ideas about death and what happens after you cross that threshold, but none of us know for sure. (laughs) And, um, it's really interesting because one of the things Murphy and I try to do in our programs is um, we, we call it our three levels of service. So service to self, service to the community and service to that, which is greater. And so we try to teach on all three of these levels. And, um, you know, with death, I think about many things. I think about um, the death of systems that need to die, the death of institutions that need to die, how we give those things a good death. Because part of the part of giving something a good death is putting it to putting it through that transition and giving it proper rest so that it doesn't haunt you, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know, I think about how how we can apply that and do that, and I also think about um, you know speaking from my own uh, perspective as a white person. Um, I've you know obviously it's been. Um, you know, people are starting to notice that white folks are often really afraid of being uncomfortable and really afraid of um, being in situations where there are no easy answers to questions. (laughs) And I think that death by its mysterious nature, if we can become comfortable with something that's so present but doesn't quite have an answer, it's still a mystery. If we can connect with that, that can help, that can bleed over and help us in other areas too. Mm. It can help us get comfortable sitting with questions that have no answers, sitting in situations where, you know, it might feel a little bit prickly or a little bit weird or a little bit strange, but we, you know, it could help. Um, it's just one way of many ways that can help, but, you know, um, I think there's some power there. So I think, um, yeah, I think if you, uh, if you don't think that, if you think that death and, and life are sort of polar opposites, <laughs> I, I would encourage you to take another look. I, I don't think they're binaries at all. <laughs> so. Death is non-binary. I love that. Um, <laughs> I want a bumper sticker that says that. Uh, you know, yeah, exactly. I, I, I love what you said about, um, I love what you said about sitting in the mystery and how that could, you know, transcend so many or transform so many cultural issues. Um, in particular, you brought in, you know, race or ethnicity. And so the, I, I guess what I love about that is I'm thinking back to an um, interview I did with an amazing, a brilliant woman. Uh, her name is Amber McZeal. And she does this, uh, she's a scholar and a writer and a teacher uh, and a, a psychotherapist, and she, her whole dissertation is about decolonizing the psyche. And um, she's she's brilliant. And her and I were talking on the interview about um, colonial death rituals. And and part of what it came down to, because we all know, or at least we three know, that race is a total construct, doesn't even exist in nature. So when you go really far back to the root of colonialism or separation, really, it was separation of earth and human. Like that's really the root. And then from there, all this other stuff grew out. Um, and so when you were saying about the mystery, I was thinking of the Lakotas and how they, they bow to the great mystery of spirit. And I think that there's something so humbling into that the constant second by second gratitude that the great mystery is out there and I don't have any say over it. So I bow to it. I mean, imagine if our culture was built from that belief versus I define the great mystery, such a different way of showing up. 
So that's really beautiful. I, I, I thank you for offering that. So um, I'm, I'm really curious about, you had said about death positivity. Jamie had said about death positivity. And I was just curious about what, you know, I know what those two words mean, but what does the movement mean? There is a movement that's uh, the death positive movement. And it's basically, um, it's, its mission is very simple, is to um, bring death to the table, like invite death to sit at the table and to um, normalize having conversations about death um, and not approaching it as a topic to be avoided or something that's scary or something that you have to just, you know, touch on quickly and then get back to business, but to actually, um, you know, talk about it uh, and talk about it often <laughs> and in multiple settings with multiple people and um, talk about, uh, you know, end of life planning, to talk about all the legal ins and outs, to talk about all the options that are out there. I mean, we, we briefly touched on, you know, green burial versus being, you know, injected with formaldehyde and put in a lead box, <laughs> you know, and to talk about the different stories and traditions and folklore that surrounds death and um can be very liberating when people realize they have options and they also have agency, um, not only in their own death, but in how they tend or, or help with the death of others that, that they care about, or if they're in that scenario. So yeah, it's, um, there's actually a website, the order of the good death, and they have, um, sort of a little mini manifesto there. And I think they're the ones that coined the term death positivity. So, yeah. That's nice. And I'm, I'm curious, Jamie, when you talk about that, are you interested in sharing your own personal feelings around your death? Like how, what you want done with your body, like how you feel about that? Like what does that go for you? <laughs> well, what I, you know, if, if, if I could have any sort of send off that I wanted, I think that I would love to have the, um, you know, my, my body is on a wooden pyre that's kind of launched into a body of water and uh, Murphy shoots a fiery arrow at the pyre. <laughs> and I get, I'll have to remember that I, request. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I get lit up and I'm just sent off, you know. I think that would be amazing. Um, so that would be option number one. I think option number two would be what they call the sky burial where your, your body mm. is laid out um, and the vultures and the, and the critters come and, and take what they're going to take. I, I have a, I have a, I have a deep relationship with vulture, so I would be more than happy to feed them my body. <laughs> and I think that, you know, if, if the, if those options weren't available, which here in the United States, that is not, um, that is not an option currently. Um, I think I would do the, uh, probably the green burial where they prepare your body naturally. It's just wrapped in like a, um, like a very natural shroud that will decompose and they put it in the ground. I would love for a tree or a bush, maybe something with flowers <laughs> to be planted over me so that my, uh, my friends and my little nieces and nephews can point to the tree and say, Oh, that's Aunt Jamie. <laughs> mm. Um, yeah, I think that would be, that would be my wish. I love those. <laughs> if the first one, <laughs> if the first one happens, I hope I'm invited. Oh, um, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Well, because I know that Murphy's arrow will uh, fly true, so we won't have any Ooh, issues. No doubt. There. No doubt there. Murphy, what about you? What are your personal ideas about your own death and your body and such? 
I've thought about this a lot. Um, and f- first, I want to note that um, burial at sea is legal. Um, you have to be three miles offshore, but if you're three miles offshore, it's legal. So we just have to like tow your barge out there, and then I can light it on fire, Jamie. No problem. Awesome, at all. great. That's um, good to I, know. I've, I've researched this because my cousin has the same request <laughs> on a Viking ship burial. Um, but uh, you have a new I, career ahead of you, Murphy. Oh yeah, fiery Viking <laughs> burials. <laughs> have to uh, register that domain name but um I think I'm also like Jamie I'm attracted to kind of being eaten by critters um I have a place on my land where I take the offal of the deer that I butcher and um we take any you know uh any livestock that dies on our on our land that we're not going to eat or something like that and i take it up there and i sing a death song over over those pieces of that animal and then i howl and um that's the signal to the local coyotes that there's a feast for them i mean they don't come running i don't get to see them but by the next i'll go back a couple days later and it's completely gone and um so i think it'd be kind of cool to like have my body taken up there and have somebody howl over me and, and tell the critters it's time to come. But I do think that that's probably not legal and would really freak out my neighbors if like their dog dragged an arm into their yard or something. So um, in deference to cultural acceptability, um, I would love to have a green burial just to be buried in a sh- simple shroud um, at the ritual circle in the hemlock grove on my land. Mm-hmm. Um and I would be joining a lot of really great spirits of animals that are already buried there. We we have um, guardians at many of the quarter uh, directions in the in the circle. There's a uh, hawk, a young hawk that was buried at the eastern gate. There's an owl buried at the western gate. There's a sapsucker buried at the southern gate, and there's a fox buried in the center under the fire pit. Um, and all of those were um, animals whose bodies came to us. Um, through you know coincidence and serendipity and we did uh divination to ask them what they wanted and they requested to hold those posts and to be a guardian of that space and the only guardian in the north is um one of the hemlock trees itself which is a wonderful guardian but um that is that is the tree that i sat under when i first came to this land and felt really called to um figure out how to become its steward and um that I would feel really honored to like hold that space in that circle and hope that people will continue to, to gather there and, and make community and magic there. Mm. That would feel really good. It's so beautiful. So I think I'm thinking of the term dying well again, and, um, and you, one of you said about like tending the transition, which I think is a really beautiful way to put it. So I would like you each to explain to us what that actually looks like. Um, and I know it can be different for everybody, especially if it's an intuitive process, if it's divinated, there's so many different ways we can show up to someone as they're passing, of course, with their consent, what they want as well. But I'm curious, just individually, how, how have you or how do you or how do you prefer one to celebrate slash tend the transition? What does that look like? Maybe Jamie first, then Murphy. Yeah, um... Well, as you said, it can look very different depending on the person. Consent's really important, um, which is, again, why we should be death positive and talk about what we want so that people know when we're Mm -hmm. in that transition period, because we may not have full consciousness when we're actively dying. 
um, actively dying is a, a term they use in healthcare. It's um, your body actually has a shutdown process after long illness. So if you're in that process of actively dying, you, you may be slipping in and out of consciousness. Um, I think, you know, there's lots of different things to, if you're in the position um, of what Murphy and I call the, the death priestex, which is a um, sort of gender neutral term for the person that's tending the transition, you're tending to the dying and you're tending to the living that are around, right? So there's multiple fronts to take care of. Um, and uh, I'm speaking of, of human death right now. Um, maybe Murphy can speak a little bit more with um, animals and with nature. Um, in human death, um, I find that the living need a lot more care, usually. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and um, one of the very interesting things that you get to know, especially if you work in a hospice or something like that, is that the ancestors start showing up. Um, it's, you know, more than once I've, I've been in a room where the, um, the person who is actively dying sees people that the rest of us can't see and interacts with them. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I like to do, if I'm the tender, I like to create a small altar to welcome the ancestors. It usually has like a bit of food and a bit of drink and maybe, you know, a small candle flame, things like that, so that the ancestors feel welcome. And when they come, they usually come to sort of to help the person that's crossing over. And, um, you know, one of the really... And this, of course, is, you know, when someone doesn't die um, quickly, right? This is when there's you know, a bit of time. One of the most important things to do is to, the, to sit vigil, the death vigil. Um, and that can look different. It can look like sitting quietly. It can look like singing or humming. It can look like um, <clears throat> doing some small bit of activity or magic with your hands, such as knitting or, or something like that. Um, you know, it can be tending to the person, making sure that they um, have a little sip of water if they need it, or they have the music that they want in their room, the, the smells, the sounds, anything that they want in their room. Um, um, the vigil is a really interesting uh, point of this work because it's, it's time outside of time almost, um, it, because it can extend for a very long period of time, but feel very short mm. at the same, you know, at the same instant. So, you know, sitting the vigil is really important. Um, one of the things I personally believe is unless it's your wish, um, you know, it's, I, I you know, I, I hate to see people die alone. I like to, I like to see them have someone with them. Um, because, you know, people have different reactions. Sometimes they're scared. Sometimes they're calm. Sometimes they're, you know, it just, uh, any, any reaction can happen. Um, and the living are often the ones that need more help, um, you know, outside of sitting the vigil with the person who's passing, uh, or crossing over the threshold. Um, the living often need to, um, they need to laugh. They need to cry. They may need to be angry. They may need to go outside and throw rocks. They, they, you know, basically whatever they need to do to sort of um, keep moving through that energy, you know, and uh, it can be really important to do just sort of the basic household things, you know, making sure there's food, making sure there's dishes that are clean, making sure, you know, the basic things are there. And um, all of that seems very mundane, but it's really important work. And then when the, when the actual threshold has been crossed, 
Um, there are all sorts of things that you can do to the body to make it sacred, where, whether it's dressing it with um, special oils that you've prepared, putting the, the shroud or the clothing that the person desires to, um, to wear in their final repose, um, to sing songs and say prayers and, you know, things like that. So there are many, many different things to be done. It's, um, yeah, um, death is very active. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love that. <laughs> On- I'm sorry, everything you were saying, you know, it was, it's interesting because in my mind, I was seeing the birth of our daughter. Like mm-hmm. it, it, my wife had like a three and a half day active labor, like talk about the word active, like active labor, mm-hmm. active death. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking of the doulas and the midwives and my mother and myself and just kind of how these, like you said, mundane things, like seemingly mundane things, those things were the altar to carry the birth through. Like they were really important. Yes, and so exactly. I can see, I can, under, and I've attended several deaths, you know, of loved ones. So they're very similar to me. They're not too different, are they? Mm -hmm. I think that the threshold of birth and the threshold of death are very similar. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think, Murphy? What is your experience? Is it specifically with the hunt or where do you go with it? Yeah, I have not in person tended a human death yet. Um, I feel like that's probably a step on my path that's yet to come. Um, but I have tended lots of animal death. Um, and I've learned so much from that about what death looks like and what death feels like and what energy is helpful to bring to that. And, um, two of the really foundational skills that Jamie and I teach in all of our classes are grounding and shielding. And being able to stay grounded when you are uh, pre-sixing, tending someone's death is like one of the primary skills. Because if you get agitated, that doesn't help anybody, (laughs) you know, you you need to be really solid in your personal grounding and resourcing and centering, um, which uh, are, are skills we've been practicing as like energetic workers for a really long time and are now all of a sudden gaining traction in this whole somatic world um, that has a new language around that as well. But, you know, people have different doorways into that now. Um, but having a like personal daily practice of grounding so that, that energy channel is really open for you to like connect, plug into the earth and, and, and get that resource to ground you is really important. And also the, the shielding potentially um, if, if there's people involved in the experience who are experiencing distress and agitation, you need to be able to distinguish between what is yours and what is theirs Mm. and to be able to not let them throw you off kilter. Um, So grounding and shielding are really important energetic skills to have. And um, I'm also a really big fan of, the bridge of song for death and carrying, you know, carrying someone through that portal with song. Mm-hmm. And um, I do that with all of the animals that I slaughter. And um, when I recover a deer that I've shot, I'll sing to them. It's a little bit after the, the moment of death, but um, I think that song is really powerful, both for both the spirit being of the, of the dying creature and for the living. Um, and it's like one of the things that we offer. Uh, there's a beautiful Gary Snyder quote, which I don't have to hand right now, but um, he talks about how, you know, we, we engage with animals for all these different purposes, you know, for food and to carry our burdens and for companionships and for 
uh, to be symbols in our lives and in our dreams and, and to inspire us in different ways. And like, what do they get out of it? And one of his answers to that is like performance, that mm. um, the human capacity for creativity and ritual and uh, the solemn and the ecstatic, like the way that we can like carry and express those emotions with um, drama and music and all of these things are like kind of our unique animal gift to the world. Um, and so I, I think that that is like that, that power of ceremony and song is a really important thing to bring to death. And I think the other thing that I feel much more, I feel much more at peace with my own death now that I have slaughtered animals, you know, and like. When did I ask you that actually? Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I've, I've held goats in my lap as they died and um, watching that. I, I do it a couple times a year in my classes. I, I don't really want to do it more than a couple times a year because it's really an intense experience. I don't plan to become a professional goat slaughterer. But um, in witnessing that process of death, I I can kind of see and empathize and like tap into that experience a little bit and like see what that looks like and maybe what that feels like and understand what the body goes through and it's really demystified things for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, likelihood is I won't die um, in, in a, like, quick, violent way, like, like you know, being, being killed for food. I'll probably die from some disease or something like that. But um, understanding what it looks like for the electrical charge of life to work its way out of the body after consciousness has left because um, there are ways that you can test to see if consciousness is is still there. One of them is if you touch the eyeball of a creature and it doesn't blink, that means it's no longer no longer has any brain function. And um, yet, still after that moment, after that has happened, there's still a lot of twitching and shaking and spasming that happens. And it's an, actually an incredibly beautiful moment if you can stay grounded through witnessing that, because it's like it's an expression of the power of life. It's, it's, mm. it's very like mm. mysterious and it's like this fire of energy that's just like held in the muscles and the bones and is like bursting forth and like this sort of last like burst of light almost. Um, and I feel this energetic release in that moment um, where there's sort of like a wave of energy that moves out from a creature that, that is dying mm-hmm. and goes back into the world and, and parts of it go into whoever's there witnessing the death. Um, and it's, it's like there's an energetic power to it that can be like a little bit of a high or just like an energetic rush that people can respond all different ways. You know, people will cry, people will laugh. It, it, you know, there can be these um, counterintuitive responses. And the one common thread is that it usually makes you feel your aliveness really, really intensely. Um, and so I think that's a valuable thing as someone who does the work of tending and witnessing death to really take in and absorb that intensity of aliveness that you feel in yourself as you witness the death of another creature. And like, don't let that go to waste. Use that to power your life and to power um, the ways that you feel called to create positive change and positive legacy and service in the world. Because Mm. it's, you know, it's the same as like how we would want our body to be eaten by the creepy crawlies versus preserved in a lead coffin. Like 
we want that energy that comes out of our flesh to be used to empower everyone else's energy and life and purpose, not mm-hmm. just like avoided. I feel like there's so much avoidance around death in our culture and mm-hmm. there's actually this like energetic release that can help, um, help people move forward and move through things. And it, and it also just takes skill to navigate like any high, there can be like a low afterwards. Um, and you kind of learn that pattern if you do this kind of work repeatedly, but, um, yeah, it's, it's good to be aware that it happens. <laughs> I'm glad you're talking about that charge, you know, cause I, I, I call that just life force, but there's so many names we can call it, of course, like spirit energy, but there is that charge that comes out. Um, I had the privilege of, of being with both of my grandmothers as they passed and it was a long death. It was like two weeks each. And there was this amazing moment I think based on what Jamie was talking about, about the active death, where the body goes into this like incredible breathing technique, right? And it's this, it was the same each time. And it was just like this, mecha- I don't even want to call it mechanical. It makes it too like man-made. But, you know, it was like this incredible, this, this being was breathing through my grandmother's body. Like it was no longer her. And, wow. you know, I get tears when I think about it because it was so gorgeous. And just to look into her eyes and okay, those are her eyes. She's not controlling them anymore. She's not in this body. She was so not in her body anymore. Like you could feel that she left the room, but there was still this like mystery moving her. And it was so profound. And um, I, I had the, the, another privilege to work with this one client who then came on my podcast to talk about her experience because it was so radical where her son... Um, suddenly was killed in a skateboarding incident. This was a year ago. And um, we were doing all this work around her fear of him dying because he was a professional skateboarder. He would take major risks. It was like his his art, his craft was skateboarding and he was with the goddess on his skateboard. It was beautiful, the things he could do. And so we were we were talking the day or two after his death and it was amazing. She was in the corporate world. She owned like a multi-million dollar business. She was working seven days a week, nonstop. She was this whole other creature. And she felt from his death, his life force go into her. And this is someone that has no training, no like shamanic training, no witch, nothing, you know, just come like really open, beautiful person, but doesn't have any, you know, like magic or otherworldly, you know, esoteric visions or anything like that. And she felt this life force come into her and she just felt propelled to do what he did. So she started skateboarding and she closed her business and she, she sold everything. And she's like living on a boat right now. It was like her whole life changed because she like absorbed you know, his energy mm-hmm. and to watch her take the energy that can be so overwhelming and then we call it grief and to turn it toward more life it completely changed her and she knows now every day like this life i have she goes spray painting with like 20 year olds in brooklyn like this life she has is like her homage to him and it it's it's like this whole new way of her navigating so i would just love like we have to close soon but just a brief a brief response about that, if that's how you see it as well, one way, of course, um, or what that opens up in you, just that idea. Yeah, that is a beautiful, powerful story. Wow, I love that. Um, we, in our death precincting work, we talk about like spirit visitation. Like many people don't even know that their relative or loved one has died and they feel that 
person's spirit come and visit them in some way. Sometimes there's a physical manifestation of it. Sometimes it's a, a vision or just an emotion or a scent, you know, all mm-hmm. kinds of different ways that we identify the presence of that spirit. And then um, I also work a lot with spirit journeying. Um, some people call it shamanic journeying, but I don't use the word shamanic because it's based in a, you know, Russian based tribe that doesn't want to seize that word because it's theirs so spirit journeying um is a way that we can journey to the realm where those spirits dwell and communicate with them and that's another thing that's really changed my um my perspective on death i have a practice of always uh, visiting the spirit of any deer that i hunt or any goat that i slaughter um and going and asking them if there's anything they want from me, what can I do for them and reciprocity, things like that. And just being able to go and communicate with these spirits in, in, it, in some ways what feels an even more direct way that I'm able to communicate across the species barrier in life um, just really reassures me that there's uh, that there is a, a way that our intelligence endures and there is uh, something that comes after. And um it sounds like in that case, there's, there's an even more like interweaving and it's even more complex. But I do think that we can visit the spirits of our loved ones and we can speak with them and we can give them our thanks and um, that those channels aren't closed after death. How about you, Jamie? What I'm, uh, two things are coming to mind. The first thing being how much we have to offer one another, um, just simply being human. And it's not based on merit or virtue or anything else, um, just our life force, which all of us carry. I think that's, that's, um, that's wonderful. That's what I call a miracle, you know? Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Everyone has it. We can all gift it to each other. And the other thing that I was thinking about, especially when I was listening to um, Murphy speak about tending the threshold of transition for animals, was how sacred it is to be a witness um, and how beautiful that role is and how um, important it is to carry those stories and that lore. And that the if you have the opportunity to be a witness, um, what a blessing that is, right? What a blessing that is. So yeah, just um, left with a profound sense of gratitude for our simple humanity. <laughs> mm. And in that, I'm going to close. It's very beautiful. Um, I could I could take hours with both of you, so I, I really appreciate <laughs> it. Um, thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having us. This is wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this. So that was the episode. I'm very interested in what you received from it, uh, where it hit you, where you feel it what's coming up for you around it. I'm in the middle of actually, um, I actually, I should say we recorded this the day before the winter solstice. So uh, I thought it was an appropriate um, theme and topic to meditate on for this week of darkness and shadow work and the beginning of winter, a very sacred time on the land. And I'm also in the middle of recording a record. It's just about finished, and it will release on May 1st on Beltane, which seems really appropriate based on the theme of this record. Uh, The album is called Songs from the Land, 
and I wrote it almost a decade ago when I was moving from New York City to Woodstock, New York. It was this little kind of safe space I created for myself to dip into because I, I was just yearning for the land and the wilderness. I was feeling a little too civilized and colonized in the city. And there's a song on the record called Black Magic, which is not about black magic as we think, but a reclamation of the term about how black, how dark, how unknown, how mysterious, how nighttime, how it all offers such a very important medicine and natural balance of the light and the daytime and the known and the predictable. And similar to what we spoke about today with death, how death is just a continuum of the life force, just another transformation, possibly even a new identity of life force, and we call it death, versus the period at the end of your life story. This song really captures those same ideas, but in the darkness. And it was a very beautiful experience for me when I wrote it. I had just moved to Woodstock and I was working at this little health food store called Sunflower Natural Foods, which is still here. And one of my coworkers was a uh, Lakota Cherokee person who is two-spirit, which is their term for what we would call um, intersex or uh, gender fluid or androgynous, you know. And I remember he came up to me with 12 barred owl feathers, which is a a huge honor coming from um, a native person. And he gave them to me and he said that he found this barred owl that was on the side of the road that had been hit. And, you know, he did a ritual and, and he, he took the feathers for his own sacred work and then gifted them to me because he, um, he identified the two spirit in me as well. And at this point in my life, I had just started understanding my, my identity and my um, androgynous biology. And, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can listen to episode one. But I just started healing all these um, issues I was having my whole life with my body and my identity and, and, and essentially healing it by letting go of all identity, not identifying with a certain gender or a certain stereotype or a certain um, condition or term. And when he brought me those feathers, it awakened something in my spirit. And I braided them into my hair and I walked up the plaque clove. And the plaque clove is this really, really special, special mountain uh, that really kind of like, um, it's not even a mountain, but it's a space between the mountains, which is what a clove is. And we lived right at the base of it. You'd look out the door and you could see a couple hundred feet, the road goes straight up. And the road was closed in November. It was very cold. I braided those feathers in my hair and I just walked out onto the road and followed the mountain. And it became a daily ritual. And I remember doing it at nighttime as night fell and the blackness of the mountains and the stillness of the earth and the way that 
all these societies and civilizations and sufferings and wars and, and, and communities existed in the world at that time. But in that moment, I was gifted with this stillness, this black, dark wilderness and all these animals I met on my, on my journey there. So I wrote this song called Black Magic. And I think it's a really um, perfect song to honor the solstice this week, as well as honor the theme of this episode. So I'm going to leave you with that, um, as well as how to get in touch with Murphy or Jamie, if you're interested. Murphy's work can be found at mountainsongexpeditions.com. And if you go there and you type in mountainsongexpeditions.com slash wayoftheweaver, you'll find their offerings there. Right now, they're in the midst of a three-series month-by-month Zoom module, okay? And it's called the Way of the Weaver program. And the first module was Death Priestixing, which had just finished and is probably going to start again in the fall. There's currently a wait list. So if you're interested, sign up now for that. The next one is Divination for Liberation. And the following one is a spell work laboratory. So these are all different um, modules to help you get in touch with different realms of yourself and community and to learn sacred work in a new way that's uh, earth-based and pagan-based and uh, rooted in the reclaiming traditions of Starhawk and Wicca. Uh, In late 2021, they're trying to open it up in person, but it's all going to depend on the pandemic. Jamie's work can be found at jamiewagner.com. And that is Wagner, W-A-G-G-O-N-E-R, jamiewagner.com. You can also follow her on Facebook, facebook.com slash jmwagner, or on Instagram at Fithia of the Pines. That's Fithia, P-Y-T-H-I-A, of the Pines. And she's doing many different events and appearances and offerings throughout the year. You can find all this in the episode details as well. I want to credit the musicians who are on this song you're about to hear, Black Magic. Um, Mark Ettinger is on cello, who is just brilliant. Um, Elizabeth Clark, my dear friend, is on the harp. Anders Bostrom is playing the flutes. There are three different flutes he plays on this. And um, Evan Glenn Adams, who edits this podcast, uh, is my dear friend. And um, he's my music therapist, you could say. (laughs) He does, you know, everything music with me and for me. He really helps me understand it. And he brings a lot to it. He produced this entire record and mixed it. And um, he's performing the guitar and the percussion pieces on here. And I'm doing the singing. So I hope you can close your eyes and let yourself be invoked into this realm of the black magic, which we're all experiencing this week as we feel and experience less daylight. Um, Of course, by the time you hear this, there's going to be more daylight, but it's still a good week to consider what is beneath, what's under the shadows, what wants to come forward and speak to you. This song came through that kind of inquiry, braiding those feathers into my hair, standing out in the black deep night of the forest, and letting these words and stories weave their way through me.
you enjoyed today's episode my question for you is where do you feel the episode take a breath and just notice what's your body doing right now sit with it let it speak to you and let whatever comes up come up and your only job is to listen for all the wisdom you need is right inside of you for more information on my work including my online courses and healing circles, please visit holisticlifenavigation.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Facebook, where I share weekly philosophies and resources to help you release stress and trauma from your body so that you can live a happier life. Thank you so much for joining me. I'll see you next time. Did you know your food cravings are actually a doorway to your subconscious? They are. We tend to see cravings as something bad or something we just give into mindlessly. But when you embody your cravings, you're able to notice they're just blossoming from a certain place that has a certain need and needs your attention. Join me on Wednesday, May 29th, as I unpack this in a new webinar called Cravings Destigmatized. In this webinar, I'll help you learn the difference between a nutritional craving and an emotional craving, as well as how do we use cravings to get in touch with our unmet needs and any of our unconscious, unprocessed emotional experiences. It begins at 4 p.m. Eastern, and everyone who registers will get a replay. You can find the link in the episode details, and you can also go to www.holisticlifenavigation.com and click on events, and the information is right there. Hope to see you there.